My name is Julia and this is the first History Jar podcast. I've started doing this because I miss my students so much. So a big hello to you all and I hope you're keeping well and occupied during lockdown. First of all, I have to start with a huge thank you to Andy Durant for taking me under his wing. Many of you already know that I'm a bit of a technological dodo. I still call the radio the wireless, which means that Marconi is pretty cutting edge in my household. So anyway, this podcast should last about 15 minutes. You really don't want to know how long it's taken me to record it or how steep my learning curve has been. So... A podcast enhances the freedom of a blog with audio digital technology. You might just as well say magic so far as I'm concerned. My blog at thehistoryjar.com is a pick and mix of history. It includes what I've been teaching, where I've been and even what I'm reading. Now clearly at the moment none of us are going very far at all. In terms of what I'm reading, I'm reading Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light. It's a bit like doing a Joe Wicks workout. I really do wish that I'd waited for the paperback version. We're not going to start with Thomas Cromwell or Henry VIII. What I'm going to start with today is no plan like yours to study history wisely, which is a mnemonic. So no plan like yours to study history wisely gives you a list of England's ruling houses if you take the first letter from each word. So Normans, Plantagenets, Lancastrians, Yorkists, Tudors, Stuarts, Hanoverians and Windsors. So no plan like yours to study history wisely, which is quite useful if you're doing a spot of home schooling at the moment. And today we're just going to do the no for Normans. Duke William of Normandy arrived in England on the 28th of September 1066, along with an army, his brother Bishop Odo, a note from the Pope giving him permission to invade, and a flat-packed castle which he erected at Pevensey. Let's hope that all the pieces were there and that he didn't have to go back and exchange anything. Still, I suppose you could argue it demonstrated his essential Scandinavianness. By Christmas, William was King of England and William the Conqueror. His brother Odo had become the Earl of Kent. William would spend the next 21 years trying to control his subjects on both sides of the Channel. In Normandy, William's oldest son Robert rebelled because he wanted more power. In England, Odo rebelled because he wanted more power, more money and more land. And as for the Saxons, well they weren't having a very good time at all. By 1086, only two Saxons held large quantities of land, sufficient to be listed on the Doomsday Book. Now, this meant that there were a lot of rebellions. Fortunately for William, they weren't very well organised, and they sprang up independently of one another, which meant that he could put them down. However, from this time, we have names like Wild Edric and Hereward the Wake. We know a little bit about them, but not enough, and this means that these two veer towards folklore rather than history. Suffice it to say, French became the language of the upper classes, whilst English became the language of the lower classes. Just look at the words we use for food today. So we have mouton, mutton, which is the food that you would eat, and the animal in the field is a sheep or a ewe, which is Saxon. The Norman Conquest is a period that children learn at both primary school and secondary school. There are a couple of useful dates that you might need to know, aside from 1066. In 1069, William harried the north, 
after he got fed up with the Northumbrians. It is said that he sowed the ground with salt. Either way, it wasn't a very pleasant experience, not the way that it's taught at school. And in 1085, he commissioned the Doomsday Book, which was collated in 1086. It's a giant list of what everyone owns for tax purposes. And then, of course, there's the Bayer Tapestry. It was actually commissioned by Bishop Odo, and he paints himself as a bit of a hero. He can be seen advising his brother, and he can also be seen on the battlefield. Now, clearly, it's not socially appropriate for bishops to be seen drawing blood, so they weren't allowed to carry swords. However, it is perfectly socially acceptable in Norman times to batter people to death if you're a bishop. So Odo is the knight on horseback who clubs his enemies to death. So that leaves just one more thing before I kill William off. Yes, that's right, the death of Harold Godwinson. Popular history says he was killed when an arrow passed through his visor and struck him in the eye. If you look at the Bayer Tapestry, you can see a knight who appears to be being shot in the eye and the name Harold above his head. However, most modern historians are of the view that when they take the primary sources into consideration, the man who is actually the king is the man who is being hacked to death next to the knight being shot in the eye. William died on the 9th of September, 1087. He was 59 years old. He left the Duchy of Normandy to his oldest son, Robert Curthose, which roughly translated means Robert Shorty Pants, the Kingdom of England to his second son, William Rufus, and £5,000 to his youngest son, Henry of Selby. Ultimately, the Norman story is one of dynastic rivalries and families being torn apart. And this is the start of that. The kings of England, and indeed the dukes of Normandy, at this point were reliant on baronial factions to support them. And now they had two masters to serve, which meant they could play one off against the other. It would have long-term consequences throughout the Norman period, and indeed throughout the Plantagenet period. Anyway, I'm jumping ahead of myself. William dies. William Rufus heads off to England to claim his new kingdom. This seems to have been the cue for everyone who was at court at that point to take what they want and scarper. William the Conqueror's body was left in a crumpled heap on the bedroom floor. Eventually, a passing knight turned up and took it upon himself to have the body embalmed. He then arranged to send it to Caen to the abbey where William had asked to be buried. As the funeral cortege arrived outside the town, for some reason the town caught fire. So the funeral itself was rather small because the majority of the population were trying to save their homes. All things considered, it was probably just as well. You see, halfway through the funeral service, a man stood up to say that his father had owned the land on which the abbey was built and that William had never paid for the purchase of that land. The service had to be stopped whilst the compensation claim was discussed. And then, after they got that sorted out, the monks discovered that the stone sarcophagus was too small. Not only was it too short, but William had grown somewhat stout over the years. So whilst they were struggling to fit the body into its final resting place, they also discovered that the embalmer hadn't been very good at his job. 
let's just say that there was a bit of a gastric explosion that would have meant that anyone present would have remembered William's interment for quite some time afterwards. Yeah. It wasn't long before the three brothers quarrelled. Poor Henry lost much of the money that his father had left to him, thanks to Robert and William conspiring against him. And as for Robert and William, well, they seemed to spend most of the period at war with one another. Eventually, Robert Shortypants took himself off on crusade, which was very convenient so far as William was concerned. You see, Robert had no money and he had to pay for his army. This meant that William, who did have a lot of money, was able to lend it to him at a price. Robert had to mortgage the, the Duchy of Normandy to his brother, and in his absence, William was going to be the regent. They also came to the agreement that if one died before the other one, without an heir, that the other brother would inherit. So if Robert died whilst he was on crusade, then William would inherit the Duchy of Normandy, but if Robert outlived his brother, then Robert would inherit the Kingdom of England. Poor Henry seems pretty much left out of it. And then fate intervened. I really can't tell you how much I'm loving this sound effect. I'm going to play it again. So, it's the 2nd of August, 1100. The scene is the New Forest. There's a body with an arrow in it on the floor. The body belongs to William Rufus. The question is, was it a hunting accident? Or did someone have him murdered? It all seems very fortunate that William died at this point. You see, Robert Curthose was on his way back from the Crusades. He'd landed himself an extremely wealthy heiress, so he was about to get his kingdom back. Poor Henry looked like he would achieve nothing. However, whilst Robert was such a long way away, Henry now had an opportunity which he took. Presumably he found a very fast horse, went as fast as possible to Winchester and secured the treasury and had himself proclaimed king. He waited just long enough to see that William Rufus was buried in Winchester Abbey, what's today Winchester Cathedral. The chroniclers of the period weren't very kind to William Rufus. Amongst other things, they described him as red-faced, short and sarcastic. More to the point, the Archbishop of Canterbury at this point was St Anselm. The framework that St Anselm's biography used was to depict St Anselm as a very good man, but you need a counterpoint to the good, and that just so happened to be William Rufus, who was bad. He was bad because as tenant-in-chief at the top of the feudal pyramid, if any lands were left vacant, then the king could draw down the income for himself. So William's way of keeping a full treasury was not to replace bishops or abbots when the bishoprics and monastic houses fell vacant. Now, consequently, he fell out with the church. However, he didn't need to claim much in the way of taxes, and because he had a lot of money, he was always able to employ a lot of mercenaries, which was one of the reasons why he was able to take a battle to Normandy on such a regular basis. He also extended the Kingdom of England. Carlisle became part of England rather than Scotland in 1092. Chroniclers inserted dreams into William Rufus's final hours. These dreams purported to be a warning from God, letting William know that unless he mended his ways, he would meet a nasty end. 
which he immediately did. In 1107, the tower of Winchester Abbey Church fell in. Rather than blaming bad foundations, the monastic chroniclers blamed the bones of William Rufus. God was still pretty cross. And we must assume that that suited the new king, Henry I, just fine. Henry had been crowned within five days of William Rufus dying. When he was in Westminster Abbey, not only were the barons present, but there was a very comprehensive coronation charter. The coronation charter is actually the foundation for Magna Carta, and every monarch thereafter has produced a coronation charter. So, was it an accident, or did Henry kill his brother? Well, circumstantial evidence does sort of point in Henry's direction. How did he manage to get the barons in London so quickly? How did he manage to have so many copies of a very lengthy and comprehensive coronation charter in place so soon after his brother's death? Was he just very organised or did he actually kill his brother? Unfortunately, Henry didn't leave a comprehensive diary. So we only have the circumstantial evidence and that's not really sufficient to make a judgment against the monarch. Henry reigned from 1100 until 1135. The first thing he did was to secure his border with Scotland. He did this by marrying Edith of Scotland, the daughter of Malcolm III and St Margaret. St Margaret is the granddaughter of Edmund Ironside. Edmund Ironside is the half-brother of Edward the Confessor. The pair of them shared a father, Athelred the Unready. So, since the reign of Henry I, every monarch, with the exception of King Stephen, is descended from the royal house of Wessex. And I guess that might have gone some way to bringing the peoples, the Saxons and the Normans together. The marriage wasn't initially a rip-roaring success. The Normans described Henry and his wife as Godric and Godiva because they felt that the court had turned too Saxon in outlook. Meanwhile, St Anselm wasn't totally convinced that Edith wasn't actually a nun. You see, she'd been brought up in Romsey Abbey to be educated, but she'd been seen wearing the full monastic garb, and St Anselm had thought she'd taken monastic vows. It took quite a long while for the problem to be worked out, and he actually asked anyone if they had any objections during the wedding ceremony. Not the usual sort of objections, but to whether anybody knew whether the bride was a nun or not. Henry's nicknames changed over time. Sometimes he would be known as Henry Beauclerk, or sometimes simply as the Lion of Justice. Certainly the chroniclers approved of Henry I mightily. Even then, they did give him the occasional bad dream, and so they should have. In modern eyes, some of his methods seem quite draconian. On one occasion, he discovered that his moneyers had been debasing the coinage. Admittedly, it was a bit embarrassing for him when his mercenaries refused to take his gold. However, he wrote back to England and insisted that the Bishop of Salisbury deal with it, which he did, by having the right hand of all the moneyers cut off. And then, on Henry's orders, he had them castrated as well. You will be delighted to hear I do not have a sound effect for that. On another occasion, we're told a man called Rolf Harnack appealed to Henry I for justice. A man called Eustace de Pacey had taken his son hostage. 
Harnack and De Pacey had come to an agreement and it was normal to exchange hostages. Unfortunately, Harnack's son had become blind during his time as a hostage. It could possibly have been an accident, it may have been illness, and there are some very lurid stories about brutal blindings. Now, Henry had to be seen to deliver justice. De Pacey had no sons, he only had daughters. He had two lovely little girls, who just so happened to be Henry I's granddaughters. But remember, Henry is the Lion of Justice. A boy is worth more than a girl. So therefore, it was only fair that both of de Pacey's daughters were blinded. And just to show no ill will, Henry had the tips of their noses cut off as well. The mother of the two girls demonstrated how angry she was by attempting to assassinate her father. And you've probably guessed the method that she used. Henry's crossbow-wielding daughter was called Julianne, and she was one of 24 illegitimate children, or thereabouts. It's probably the thing that Henry I is most famous for, the number of illegitimate children that he had. Oh, and dying of a surfeit of lampreys. There are two useful dates from the reign of Henry I, or perhaps more honestly, there are two dates that I tend to remember. The first one is 1106 and the Battle of Tinch Bray. It was at this battle, which lasted slightly less than an hour, that Henry I got his grubby little paws on the Duchy of Normandy, and his brother Robert became a captive. Robert would spend the next 28 years in custody, learning to speak Welsh, and eventually dying and being buried in Gloucester Cathedral. Henry never claimed to be the Duke of Normandy. He always said he was a regent. It was only after his nephew, William Cleto, died that he became the Duke of Normandy. The other date that I tend to remember is the 25th of November, 1120. And this was the date when the white ship sank off Harfleur. Think of it as a drink driving accident because the ship um, was supposed to be taking William Adlin, Henry's one legitimate son, home from Normandy to England. Unfortunately, William, his courtiers and even the sailors had been to the local tavern beforehand and then they decided on a dark and stormy night to race the vessel home in an attempt to beat Henry. The inevitable happened. The ship sank. 300 people drowned. Several of them were Henry's illegitimate children. Apparently, William went back to fetch one of his favourite half-sisters, who he could hear screaming above the sound of the wind and the waves, and the rowing boat that he was in capsized. Henry was devastated. The succession was in question once again. He only had one other legitimate child, but she was a girl. But England didn't have a Salic law. A Salic law is the one that prohibits women and their descendants from inheriting the throne. So Henry thought about it, and in the end, he strong-armed his barons into accepting Matilda. Matilda had been married off at a young age to the Holy Roman Emperor, hence Empress Matilda. But he had since died, and Henry had arranged a second marriage for her to Geoffrey of Anjou. Obviously, when Henry died, the barons went back on their words. What do you expect? 
They had learned that possession is nine-tenths of the law, that securing a treasury is essential, and if your opponent is a long way away, you might as well make hay while the sun shines. And that is exactly what Stephen of Blois did. However, before we get to King Stephen, it's time to consider the king under the car park. No, not that king under the car park. I'm talking about Henry I. He was buried at Reading Abbey. He'd founded that abbey himself, and he was buried behind the high altar, as you might reasonably expect. However, it was lost at the time of the Reformation. These days, historians think that the tombs that were behind the high altar are actually situated in the car park of Reading Jail. So that is the story of the king under the car park. Meanwhile, many of the barons did support Stephen of Blois, but equally, there were just as many barons who supported the Empress Matilda, including her own half-brother, the very powerful Robert I, Earl of Gloucester. The civil war which followed lasted for the better part of 20 years and is described these days as the anarchy. The chroniclers of the period said it was a time when Christ and all his apostles slept. Matilda was never crowned, although her army did capture King Stephen at the Battle of Lincoln in 1141, and this was the point that she came as close as she ever did to being crowned, but she met so much opposition from the Londoners that she never went to Westminster Abbey to receive her crown, instead of which she took on the title the Lady of the English. In addition to the opposition from London, there was also the fact that following the rout of Winchester later in the year, Robert Earl of Gloucester was captured and Matilda had to swap him for Stephen. Later on in the story, she became trapped in Oxford Castle and fled across the frozen river to safety. The Civil War ended up as a stalemate. In reality, much of Britain was ruled by local barons who did more or less what they wanted. It was not a good time to be a peasant. It was at this point in English history that we nearly ended up with a King Eustace. Stephen's son wasn't very popular. He certainly wasn't terribly popular with monastic chroniclers who described him as an evil man, though that might have had something to do with his habit of pilfering monastic houses. In any event, the Pope didn't want Eustace to be king, and then Eustace died shortly after pilfering the Abbey at Bury St Edmunds. Inevitably, the chronicles say that this was God's punishment. It'd have to be said that the Norman period isn't really very full of nice people. Most of them you wouldn't want to meet down a dark alley. The exception to that is King Stephen. The chroniclers describe him as a kindly man who was swift to pardon his enemies. However, they don't necessarily see that as a good thing. A good king is not necessarily a good man. The one good thing about the death of Eustace was it opened up the way for Matilda's son to come to make a claim for the English throne. Henry Fitz Empress is better known to history as Henry II, but before all of that, he had to gain his throne, and he did that when he reached England in 1153. There was a brief siege at Wallingford, and then he was able to negotiate a truce with King Stephen that recognised that after Stephen died, that he, Henry, would become King of England. The Treaty of Wallingford, just to make matters more difficult, is also known as the Treaty of Winchester or the Treaty of Westminster. Take your pick. 
King Stephen died on the 25th of October 1154, bringing an end to the Norman period and of course nearly bringing our podcast to an end. Before that though there's just time for this. I really do love that sound effect. So what could you read if you were interested? Well, could I suggest Theresa Cole's book entitled After the Conquest is a very readable history of the Norman period. If you're looking for something fictional, then James Aitchison's Conquest series, which I think runs to four books at the moment, is well worth a read. Alternatively, you may enjoy the Leopards of Normandy series by David Churchill which charts power struggles in Normandy and the rise of Duke William of Normandy. And that brings this podcast to a conclusion. I'm sure that the History Jar podcast will evolve as I become more confident with talking to myself and with using the technology. Thank you ever so much for listening. I miss all my classes and I hope that we will be able to get together soon. In the meantime, please stay safe. Bye for now.